0: That's heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. And make sure you donate before March 31st. Thank you.
1: This episode is brought to you by Organic Grower School, offering a holistic crop management series for farmers starting on March 23rd. Learn more at organicgrowerschool.org.
2: This week on Meet and 3, we continue our trade series with a piquant look at the many faces of the spice trade, from the high price tag of saffron to the ubiquity of chilies, and the potential ripple effect that farmer protests in India may have on the global spice market.
0: You know, farmers are, are protesting because they feel like their
3: lives and livelihoods are on the line.
2: You find it in a lot of cured foods, like cured meat and Parmesan cheese. Um, you also find it in ripening foods, like ripe tomatoes are very high in uh, MSG. So there's sources of it all over the natural world. Tune in to Meet and Three HRN's weekly food news roundup wherever you get your podcasts. Hello, this is Lisa Held, and you're listening to The Farm Report, a Heritage Radio Network show about the people, processes, and policies that shape how food is produced today. At this moment in time, we are about 20 days into the Biden administration, and the White House is already making moves that will affect food and agriculture. With a new Congress in place and Democrats in control in both the House and the Senate, at least slightly, it's also a new chapter for food and farm legislation. To talk about what all that might mean in the coming months and years, I invited Eric Diebel to come on the show. Eric is the policy director for the National Sustainable Agriculture Coalition, often referred to as NSAC. In the past, he's worked on Capitol Hill in senators' offices, and on the flip side, he's also worked directly with farmers as a veterinarian. Eric, welcome to the show.
3: Well, thank you, Lisa. It's very nice to join you today. Thank you for inviting me.
2: Sure. Yeah. So, I, I mean, I think your background um, kind of working alongside agricultural producers and then also, um, you know, in Washington is is kind of the perfect combination when it comes to talking about farm policy, right? <laughs>
3: Well, thank you. Um, I, I like to think that I've been able to, over the past uh, 10 years or so, cover the full spectrum of, of farms from the uh, back end of a dairy cow, where I started out as a veterinary student, all the way to the uh, hallowed halls of D.C., uh, working on agricultural <laughs> policy.
2: Great. So for those of uh, who are listening who don't know NSAC, um, give us the quick elevator pitch. Who do you represent and what do you do as an organization?
3: Sure. NSAC is a 30-year-old coalition of organizations and farmers uh, that are dedicated towards making American agricultural uh, practices more sustainable, uh, more sustainable economically, more sustainable environmentally, uh, and to build a more just and equitable and resilient food system that works for every farmer and makes sure that there's safe food available to everyone affordably in their own community.
2: And you have um, lots of members all over the country, is that right? Can you give us a sense of how many organizations are members?
3: Sure. We've got 130 member organizations, and like you said, they are all over the country. Uh, and many of the organizations are farmer organizations, and even more are farmer-serving organizations. So they may be organizations that are dedicated towards uh, regional conservation practices. They may be interested in uh, creating uh, more resilient local food systems, food hubs, and networks of healthy food um, outlets in communities. It sort of spans the entire spectrum of food production um, done in a way that makes things work better for farmers and for consumers.
2: Got it. So one thing I learned last time I spoke with you um, I think it was for a civil elite story, was that for for every new administration, NSAC produces a transition document with recommendations for the incoming administration. So what were NSAC's top priorities for the Biden administration? Can you walk us through the big takeaways from that document?
3: Happy to. Yeah, we, we at NSAC have been working... Uh, with the coalition members and a partner organizations to scope out transition team documents for every presidential administration incoming for the last 30 years. Uh, and this past, uh, election cycle was no different. Uh, and so the folks at, uh, NSAC, uh, sat together virtually this time, uh, right. and, and created a, a, a rather hefty tome. Uh, it clocked in at about 60 pages, which is a light document for anybody who's ever read an NSAC, uh, paper or report would know. <laughs> But it was really dense and filled with some excellent ideas about how the administration, uh, how the Biden Harris administration could hit the ground running and the important issues that they could work on within the first 100 days, not just to accomplish something, but to set the arc of what they would like to see happen in agriculture and food systems over the next four or maybe even eight years. Uh, And so in that document, there were a lot of different recommendations. There were recommendations on how conservation programs that USDA has supported for many years could work better uh, for more farmers and uh, increase the amount of uh, conservation return on federal investments. Uh, There were provisions in there about helping to support farmers uh, that sell directly to consumers uh, through places like farmers markets or through uh, school programs. Uh, and there are lots and lots of different provisions in there uh, in the transition team documents uh, around the way in which farmers can be put at the center of climate mitigation and climate change resilience because we know that that's an issue that every farmer faces wherever they're farming Uh, and we want to make sure that uh, the Biden-Harris administration was prepared to use all of the tools at USDA to put farmers right in the middle of that climate change solution. The other provision uh, provisions that were in the document that I think are really important to mention right at the top are provisions around equity uh, and making sure that uh, USDA uh, addresses some of its longstanding uh, problems and concerns about how it uh, serves uh, BIPOC farmers, uh, tribal communities um, and and other farmers who have not had the same access uh, to USDA programs over the years, uh, and, and our recommendations uh, Featured equity uh, uh, at the center uh, of both the recommendations for policies and the way in which USDA could uh, implement existing programs.
2: Got it. So there's a lot here. Um, I want to <laughs> I want to talk about conservation and, and climate for sure. Um, before we do that, let's let's start with equity. Um, I think you know, there's been a lot of talk about racial equity um, and racial justice with this administration coming in um, for every agency, right, throughout the administration um, and definitely at USDA. And, you know, I want to provide listeners with a little background if they haven't been kind of um, paying attention to this issue, but um, Tom Vilsack is taking the reins at USDA. Well, he hasn't been confirmed yet, um, but it's pretty likely that that will happen very soon. Very likely it will happen very soon, right? Um, Yeah. (laughs) And, you know, um, Vilsack was the agriculture secretary under President Obama, and there's been a lot of great reporting on how he talked about tackling the department's long history of discrimination against black farmers, but didn't do much to actually tackle it. Um, And, you know, now he's been saying he understands that past failure and he intends to make it a top priority this time around. Um, What are you thinking about his commitment and what he can do to really make good on that promise this time?
3: Well, I think it's genuine. Uh, And and I think that um, I think that Secretary Vilsack faced some challenges during his first tenure Uh, both structurally and and the degree to which he was permitted to act on uh, some of the equity issues um, that he has been speaking about quite openly uh, and quite publicly uh, as of late. So I I believe that his heart is in it. Uh, I've been uh, fortunate to be on a number of calls that he's hosted uh, with uh, lots of farming organizations. And this is always featured quite highly. In, uh, in what he's chosen to talk about. And I think you saw it again during his confirmation testimony when he uh, you know, led with making sure that USDA worked for all farmers, particularly those uh, members uh, of the BIPOC community for whom it had not uh, served uh, particularly well. I'd also say that beyond uh, being earnest in his commitment, he's also speaking about things in a fairly sophisticated way and, and that might not always come through. know, he's not just talking about um, programs that USDA has been, um, that have been in place for many years, sometimes decades, uh, that haven't necessarily uh, served uh, Black uh, and Indigenous and farmers of color particularly well. We tend to think of things like crop insurance and FSA offices and and NRCS programs. But he's also talking about the way in which climate change could disproportionately impact uh, communities of color. Uh, and the need to make strategic investments in those communities and in BIPOC farming communities to make sure that those farmers don't get left out of a potential climate change solution. And and also an additional level of nuance in talking about access to farming and and the issue of bringing more BIPOC farmers back in to agriculture uh, and making sure that whatever programs or policies that USDA puts in place don't make land prices rise to a level where uh, it limits farmland access uh, for BIPOC producers or folks that would like to become producers. So I think think he's earnest, and I think he's sophisticated in the way in which he's approaching this problem.
2: Hmm, Interesting. Um, Another thing I wanted to ask you about is um, legislation on this point. So the Justice for Black Farmers Act um, was introduced by Senators Cory Booker, Elizabeth Warren, and Kirsten Gillibrand, and that re- includes reforms that would affect USDA, among many other programs and um, reforms. I'm, I'm curious if NSAC is supporting that bill um, and what you think about its chances of, of actually going anywhere.
3: Well, uh, NSAC members uh, did get together and held a special session to uh, consider uh, endorsing the bill, and, and they chose to do so. And I think they uh, they made a good decision when they, when they made that recommendation. It's an important bill, uh, and recognizing that it is unlikely to be uh, implemented as it is currently drafted, I think the most important thing that the bill does is point, point a direction uh, for USDA and sort of uh, give the Secretary some landmarks and some potential new tools. Um, I'd also say that, you know, in late breaking news, uh, Senators Warnock, Booker, um, Lujan and Stabenow uh, yesterday, uh, well, late last night, uh, introduced uh, another bill uh, to address um, farm debt uh, for BIPOC producers, uh, and press is just going out about this today. Uh, but uh, at sort of first glance, it looks like another really important uh, bill to address historic discrimination in federal agriculture policy as it relates to lending and credit access. So. Uh, there's a lot of movement here. Oh, and, and forgive me, Patrick Leahy, uh, Senator Patrick Leahy of Vermont also uh, was an original co-sponsor of the bill. Uh, and, and so there you know, there are some developments that are um, shaping up uh, even as we speak uh, to try to make sure that USDA and potentially Secretary Vilsack, should he be confirmed, has resources, uh, tools, and the authority that he's going to need in order to make a real difference.
2: Great. Um, I love this breaking policy news on the Farm Report right now. Of course, <laughs> when this runs, the the news will be out about that bill. But I hadn't heard of it, so that's that's really cool. Well, it,
3: it literally, you know, we we had some calls uh, late yesterday, and I think the official announcement happened last night around nine thirty. So still pretty fresh.
2: Got it. <laughs> um, all right, so we're going to take a quick break for a word from a sponsor, um, and we'll be right back with more with Eric Diebel. <laughs>
1: This episode is brought to you by Organic Grower School, offering a holistic crop management series for farmers starting on March 23rd. This holistic crop management curriculum and training opportunity is in partnership with Certified Naturally Grown. Growing a viable farm business is sustained by continuous learning of the land and your products. In this workshop series, growers across Southern Appalachia and beyond will gain tools to manage their crop production for whole farm success. Organic Growers School is offering the Holistic Crop Management Training as a six-part webinar series. It will include a mixture of videos, resources, and live virtual meetings between March 23rd and April 27th. Learn more, meet the instructors, and register now at organicgrowerschool.org.
2: All right, we're back. This is Lisa Held. You're listening to The Farm Report on Heritage Radio Network. I am talking to Eric Diebel, the policy director from the National Sustainable Agriculture Coalition, about policy um, as the Biden administration kind of hits the ground and, and we welcome a new Congress. So... Eric, we talked a lot about equity um, before the break, and I want to talk about climate and environmental issues related to food and farming. So you mentioned conservation programs, and I know uh, NSAC has been a a really big champion of those programs like EQIP and CSP, the Conservation Stewardship Program, for a long time. There's been a lot of talk about expanding these. Um, What does NSAC think is the most effective way to grow these programs or just generally like make them big, make them more effective um, do you have specific recommendations for policymakers
3: we have so many recommendations for policymakers <laughs> uh, obviously it figured pretty pretty heavily in the, in the transition team documents and also in the discussion that we've been having with with many members of Congress over the past few weeks I think uh, at the highest level um, there are two different things that the coalition members would really like to see happen. And the first is a considerable increase uh, in funding going to existing conservation programs at USDA. Uh, And you can see that in bills like Congresswoman Pingree's Agricultural Resilience Act, uh, and you can see it in uh, several bills that will be introduced uh, in the Senate uh, shortly. The other thing that I think the coalition members would really like to see is making climate change Carbon sequestration, the reduction of GHGs, uh, and, and a host of other uh, environmental benefits, um, be given additional importance when USDA is both selecting uh, applications uh, for, um, you know, for conservation uh, programs uh, to make sure that all the investments that they're making um, acknowledge climate change and invest in uh farmer focused actions that are going to uh to help mitigate climate change, both for that farmer and, and for everybody.
2: Hmm. And that makes sense, right? Because I I mean for, for people who don't know, that these programs support a wide range of practices. And so you know it could be something like building a fence that makes your operation more um uh efficient or or it could be um a hoop house or but but you're saying kind of weighting the different practices um, that actually have climate impacts a little more significantly.
3: Precisely. So if you imagine, if you're gonna build a fence to to keep cattle away from a stream, that's really important in making sure to to, to preserve that water quality. If you are putting that fence in to keep your cattle out of a stream, but also because you're instituting uh, intensive rotational grazing, uh, and switching to a pasture based system that has some pretty profound positive impacts on climate change and so that should get you know both additional consideration for funding by USDA as well as maybe more money to help you incentivize even greater adoption of that practice
2: right so are you seeing any um any sort of movement on these two areas in terms of increased funding and also this this kind of um prioritizing practices do you expect um That these recommendations will be taken up? Or or what are you thinking on that front?
3: Well, not not to jump too far ahead, because we're in the middle of one reconciliation process right now to deal with the coronavirus response. But we expect that if not the next bill, the bill after that will be a rather large reconciliation package around climate change. Uh, The Biden-Harris administration has been very public uh, about the need to put climate change at the center of all federal policies. And so we expect that uh, we'll see a lot of increases for uh, conservation oriented programs that address climate change directly in that bill. At least that's the hope of the coalition for sure. And it's not just the next reconciliation package that we're looking at. You know, if the administration is going to make real investments in climate change mitigation and resilience and adaptation, They're going to need to invest in agriculture in the same way that it looks like they're going to invest in energy production or transportation. Um, Farmers have uh, the unique ability to go below zero. Uh, you know a, a farmer with the right tools and the right incentive structure uh can farm in a way that 's not just carbon neutral but carbon negative and very few other sectors of the economy is that possible so it's really important to make sure that farmers get a chance to uh to participate in these solutions and really that the the investment is there
2: got it okay um so another solution that is getting a lot of attention right now that is a little bit more controversial because, you know, it does seem to me that conservation programs are pretty much universally uh, beloved, right? Like no matter where you are on the political spectrum. Almost everyone um, agrees that conservation programs are a good thing. How much money they get maybe, you know, is up for grabs or, you know, there's some differing opinions. But um, funding is how
3: Congress shows its love. And we would always love them to love conservation (laughs) programs even more. But you're right. It's taken about 30 years to get there. But there is general acceptance of conservation programs is really important to farmers across the political spectrum.
2: Right, right. Um, so, and carbon markets, not so much. So there's, there's a lot of controversy around the idea of carbon markets. Um, a lot of the big agriculture companies and organizations support it. Um, many, um, uh, Democrats are on board. The Biden administration has signaled kind of, um, that carbon markets might be a direction they're interested in going in. Um, But then there's progressives and groups that represent sort of small farms that say carbon markets will only benefit big commodity producers. Um, There's also issues of how to measure carbon sequestration, like is this even going to be effective? Um, What's NSAC's take on all of this?
3: Well, you know, within a coalition, it's hard to achieve unanimity across the board, but we come pretty close when it comes to carbon markets. And I think the folks in the coalition approach them with Deep skepticism. I think a lot of the things that you brought up at, at, uh, in your question are questions and concerns that NSAC members have. There are concerns that any financialization of carbon sequestration on farms is going to disproportionately uh, improve or uh, sort of compensate uh, the largest uh, farms. Uh, which could potentially increase the pressure to uh, consolidate and concentrate further in agriculture. Uh, there is the real question about how do we measure uh, carbon sequestration, uh, particularly over the long-term, because you wanna make sure that any of the investments um, that people are, are buying, any potential offsets would be durable offsets. Uh, and that's challenge because you know farming is different in different places with different soils and different climates and different crops, and you need to account for all of that. And also um, there is a a real concern that if you only invest for carbon, then all you get is carbon sequestration and you lose all of the other benefits, which you mentioned previously, things like air quality, uh, uh, water quality, and water quantity, um, wildlife habitat, um, you know, you, you lose all of those uh, additional benefits that existing conservation programs uh, can bring forward. And then there's also a technical issue. And, and you know, I think uh, uh, Secretary Vilsack has been speaking about this quite publicly, uh, particularly as of late, about the desire to make sure that um, a lot of these questions get answered before USDA creates a carbon market and then in conversations with other folks in the administration, whether or not it's USDA's role to establish a carbon market. Um, If, you know, as we have heard, the Biden-Harris administration is going to make climate change a, a defining element of their administration, then it's also going to need to be something that happens at energy and transportation, as well as agriculture, and actually, quite frankly, across all of the departments within government. And so then the question becomes, can USDA um, fit whatever program they would design into this broader context and the need to really have an integrated solution rather than an ad hoc carbon market for farmers? And you know, I think it's important for listeners to understand this is not the first time uh, that we've had a carbon market in this country. Uh, and you know, California's had a carbon market for decades. And we know it has not worked particularly well for farmers. So it's not just a question of having a carbon market that farmers can participate in, should we get to that at some point down the road, uh, but that it has to work for farmers and it has to be accessible to uh, small and mid-sized farmers and farmers who are farming in a, in a, diverse, uh, a diverse way uh, rather than just the largest uh, corn bean rotation uh, farms.
2: Yeah, yeah, that makes a lot of sense. Um, one thing you mentioned earlier that I wanted to come back to is this idea of an intersection between uh, racial justice and climate policy. So, um, there was recently even an article in the New York Times that looked at the intersection of these issues and how they kind of coalesce at the farm level. Are there key things that you think USDA could do to address these two issues, racial justice and climate action at once?
3: well it's going to be a challenge because there are a lot of programs across usda all of which the secretary is going to need to bring an equity lens uh, to as he considers uh, the implementation of new programs and uh, the continued implementation of existing programs so first of all it just it is complex Um, second There are a couple of things, uh, investments in in existing conservation programs in particular that could be quite helpful. Um, It is uh, no surprise to anybody who's read some of NSAC's voluminous uh, reports on uh, conservation practice uh, standards and conservation program participation that USDA has done a terrible job of helping BIPOC farmers participate in conservation programs. Um, There, you know, additional incentives are always helpful, but so is targeted outreach and genuine efforts to build relationships with BIPOC producers and BIPOC serving organizations. And I think that that USDA uh, could do a great deal here with some targeted outreach, um, some targeted investment. I mean, there are places in uh, the black belt uh, where there are no participating CSP producers. And, and that is, uh, you know, there are no farmers um, of color that are participating in, in conservation stewardship uh, program in in big sections of the country, and and that's that's wrong, right? We we know that USDA can do a better job of helping farmers um, adopt conservation programs and practices and and be paid for. It. Uh, and that's gonna take some work uh, at the national level, but also within the state offices. So as USDA looks to restaff after four years of um, erosion of capacity, let's call it charitably, um, looking, looking to restaff those offices uh, with people who are excited about going out and serving every farmer in their community, that's gonna be key to making sure that there's a greater opportunity and greater adoption of existing programs.
2: Yeah. I, I think it's great that you mentioned the, the restaffing aspect, too, because um, I think it's important that people understand a lot of these agencies, including the USDA, have been so understaffed. So there's this this curve of it's like, what what are the agencies going to do in the first 100 days? It's like a lot of them are just trying to get people in those jobs at this point, right? So
3: there's, it's, there's it's, going to be
2: a weight in, yeah. on some of these things. <laughs> it's,
3: it's hard to do good work without people. And um, by by... Intention and uh, occasionally by um, just sheer apathy, uh, the previous administration um, really, really uh, eroded the number of um, staff that are there to serve farmers, and I think farmers have been really poorly served by that. And you know, I think we saw this with the relocation of the Economic Research Service and NIFA uh, to Kansas City, which caused you know a, a loss of about 75% of their employees. Um, All the way through uh, the fact that there are just not enough staff in places like NRCS that are absolutely essential uh, for making sure that farmers can get um, the information that they need, that they can get folks to do the farm visits that are required to participate in programs. Uh, And, uh, you know, it's, it's all the way from the point where the farmer walks into a USDA office to the research that farmers are going to rely on for the next 30, 40, 50 years, that entire continuum across USDA doesn't have enough people in it. And I, I know that the administration is prioritizing um, restaffing, uh, You know, they're using uh, the direct, author- uh, direct hire authorities that they have to get people in as quickly as they can. Uh, and they're looking at uh, recruiting from lots of different communities and lots of different places they might not have looked before in an effort to get good people into those seats as quickly as they can.
2: Hmm. Absolutely. Um, okay. Last topic. Um, <laughs> briefly, we're going to go through this massive thing, which is um, the Child Nutrition Reauthorization. Uh, no one knows about this. Basically, no one thinks about it except for me and you, maybe. But um...
3: <laughs> I love CNR.
2: <laughs> so so NSAC has has been focused on this for for a while now. Can you just briefly? Briefly explain what it is and why that's true, given that you're an agricultural organization.
3: Sure. So the Child Nutrition Reauthorization, often called CNR, is uh, an interesting bill. And like the Farm Bill, it's supposed to pass every five years. And it's supposed to inform all child nutrition programs across the country in the same way that the Farm Bill affects all farming programs across the country. And CNR is uh, a, a bill that... Um, directs federal spending on things like the school meal programs, the child and adult care feeding programs, uh, and, and a variety of uh, WIC uh, programs are in there as well. And so uh, it, it is an essential bill to make sure that nutrition is available and nutrition support is available to the most vulnerable people in, in our country, um, kids uh, in particular. Now, why it matters to NSAC, um, beyond the fact that it's really important to make sure that everybody is well-fed and well taken care of. Um, those people generally eat food, uh, and, <laughs> and 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 SAC is in the business of supporting sus- uh, sustainable farmers who often grow food um, for for these for these children and for these families. And so, uh, where sustainable local and regional food systems intersect with these programs through things like farm-to-school and procurement for institutions. Uh, schools, universities, and, and and governments, and those sorts of places, uh, that's a place where NSAC wants to make sure and has worked for a long time to lift up uh, the farmers who want to sell into those uh, into those supply chains and to support those programs. And and beyond that, it's not always child nutrition reauthorization, but some components of it are. Um, there's the ability for uh, low income individuals to go to farmers markets and buy directly from farmers with uh, some additional uh, double up food bucks or money that may come to them through the GusNet program um, so that farmers markets are better able to support uh, low income families. Uh, and, and that's another series of programs, again, some in CNR and some in the Farm Bill uh, that NSAC has uh, you know promoted and supported for for many years that that really help. Um, farmers serve um, the people who need the help in their own community and we think those programs uh, are great
2: okay and so cnr at this point is um now six years late i think it technically should have been done in in 2015. so um now that we've got a new congress do you expect any movement on cnr
3: i'm going to say no and you can call me back when i'm wrong and we can discuss why i was wrong Uh, but the challenge with the child nutrition reauthorization is that the bill that was passed in 2010 called the healthy hunger free kids act contained about 30 years of program enhancements things that people had wanted to do for decades they were finally able to do in that bill and while, as you mentioned at the top of the program, there is unitary control by the Democratic Party of both houses of Congress uh, and, and the White House, um, it is still going to be a challenge to improve what is in that program. There are numerous enhancements that you know other folks are probably better able to talk about than I am. Uh, eliminating um, some meal price categories, I'm covering the debts of of school uh, programs that you know school, uh, school food system. Uh, providers. There's a a bunch of important stuff that I know folks would like to get to and like to improve, but it's going to be a bit of a challenge. And honestly, a lot of it can probably be handled through a spending bill. So what we might see is the spending components of child nutrition reauthorization handled through a budget reconciliation process or a funding bill, uh, while the authorization components sort of get set to the side for now uh, and potentially could be addressed. Uh, But if they were to be addressed, it would, have to, it would have to happen soon uh, because uh, I think folks in Congress would be interested in doing a CNR before the Farm Bill rather than trying to do both at the same time. Uh, and so if we don't see movement very soon on a CNR, I think we're unlikely to see one in this Congress. Although again, they may take care of many of the funding issues through the budget reconciliation process.
2: Mm, okay. Wow. Okay. We covered a lot of ground. Um, (laughs) Eric, thank you so much for coming on the show.
3: Lisa, my pleasure. And I'm happy to come back anytime that you or anybody has a question.
2: Maybe maybe for the farm bill, we could get you back on. There'll be a lot to talk about then.
3: Well, I hope it doesn't take three more years. But yes, I'm happy to come back and talk about that as
0: well. Okay.
2: Thank you all so much for listening to The Farm Report on Heritage Radio Network. If you enjoyed the conversation, please subscribe to the podcast, rate it, and share it. Until next time, this is Lisa Held. The Farm Report is powered by Simplecast. Thanks for listening to Heritage Radio Network, food radio supported by you. For our freshest content, subscribe to our newsletter. Just enter your email at the bottom of our website, heritageradionetwork.org. Connect with us on Instagram and Twitter at heritage_radio. radio. You can also find us at facebook.com heritageradionetwork.